0: Steve Roberts emerged out of a crowded Democratic primary to represent a state house district in Central and North St. Louis, and he has some ideas about what he'll face when he enters the Missouri General Assembly. The Democrat joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking.
1: Nine, eight, seven, six, six, five,
0: five four, three, three, two, two,
1: one. Uh, I think that is fair as to I say, say
0: hands to kiss and babies to shake. but know, uh,
1: <laughs> I think my record speaks for itself. It's a really good question.
0: Hello and welcome to the politically speaking podcast. I'm your host Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is still on vacation so filling in for her we have.
2: Liz Schlemmer and I'm the news intern here at St. Louis Public Radio. We
0: appreciate your time and uh, joining us as our special guest, the winner of the 77th District Democratic, House primary, we have in studio.
1: Steve Roberts, uh, state representative elect for the 77th district.
0: Now, this is an important question. Do we refer to you as just Steve Roberts, Steve Roberts Jr., Steve Roberts the second, Steve Roberts the oh, Amazing Steve or something like that?
1: <laughs> is it re- representative now or the what, honorable? <laughs> you, you, you
0: have to win your, your unopposed general election first. But <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself.
1: Yeah. Uh, Steve's fine.
0: Yeah. You just won a four-person Democratic primary where, again, the— the election there is tantamount to election we'll get to that in a minute but before we get to that tell us a little bit about yourself um, about your your political family because you do come from a political family and anything else we want to know about steve roberts junior second sure amazing. sure
1: i'll give you my uh, little 30 second bio well I, I was born and raised here in the city of st louis uh, fourth generation st louis i uh, went to law school I'm an attorney by training on the West Coast. I went to Pepperdine. And it was really there that I developed a real passion for criminal justice. I was able to work there with the uh, Compton District Attorney's Office as a certified law clerk. And then from that experience, I was selected to work with an organization called the Council to Secure Justice in New Delhi, India. And then through that experience, I was um, selected to work with one of my professors. He had a Clinic in Los Angeles, California, where we're helping refugees fleeing asylum. Excuse me, fleeing persecution, get asylum here in the U.S. So that kind of was my start and interest in public service.
0: And after you graduated from law school, looking at your your bio, I think you first went to work in the private sector, and then you worked in the circuit attorney's office.
1: That's right. Yeah, I was uh, working in house with a private equity company in San Diego, uh, California. They hired me right out of law school. And I was there just over a year when the events in Ferguson happened, and that really kind of rekindled my interest in criminal justice. So I uh, quit my job, had my salary more than cut in half, to work here in the city as a prosecutor.
0: How, how was that experience? Because I've heard Jennifer Joyce say some not-so-good things about you, <laughs> which I want to give you the opportunity to say anything if you want to.
1: Sure. I mean, for, for me, I, um, it, it was interesting. I mean, I was like the first, I think, African-American male hired by that office in the last 16 years. And um, it was in offices that, you know, for the most part, we prosecute young black men like myself. And that was kind of one of the other things I didn't like about it is catching young men really on the back end, at least by the way. The laws are currently structured and under the current leadership of the office to really make an impact in their lives. So that's kind of what drew me to the legislature.
0: You would almost were thinking of running for the circuit attorney's office. You're only like 26, 27 years old. Is that Uh, correct? 28. That's right. 28. So when you first told me about that, I know know that there's been youngest circuit attorneys before, but I was like... Mm, Are you really sure about that? And (laughs) What made you change from circuit attorney to state rep? Obviously, one of the factors was Kim Gardner decided to run for circuit attorney, but you were thinking of running for that job. What made you change your mind, essentially? I
1: was. Well, for me, I think that to make the real changes I wanted to through policy and criminal justice reform, which is something I've always been passionate about, that can only be done in the legislature.
0: And
2: now that the election's over, you know, we didn't really cover your campaign very closely, and I was wondering, now that you've succeeded, how do you think it went? What was it like campaigning?
1: Oh, it was great. I mean, of course, it's, uh, I'm sure you ask any candidate, it's uh, very stressful, but I had a great team, a good support system with my family. You know, we were all working hard, and it, uh,
0: your dad was actually Steve Roberts Sr., who used to be an alderman, is now part of the Roberts Brothers Development Team. Like, That's right. How, how did how did growing up seeing how he operated influence you to get into politics?
1: Well, when he was in politics, I was very, very young. I mean, he he also ran for mayor. I think I was probably like six or seven years old. So
0: you probably don't remember that much of it. Yeah. Yeah. But how did he, I'm sure he's told you stories. I'm sure you've talked to your uncle who also was in politics too. Like, how did that affect your your thinking going forward? Well,
1: for me, I mean, public service was always um, really important to me and my family. So I think that kind of rubbed off on me.
2: And how do you think your background as a prosecutor will affect what issues are important to you or what approach you'll take in the legislature?
1: Well, the, the one thing I liked about being a prosecutor is that it kind of was a glimpse uh, behind the curtain. You know, you could really see, um, you know, from the prosecutor's perspective, and as far as that as well, like you know, different charging decisions, things like that. So as far as, um, at least for me, a, a certain uh, level of empathy. Like, like I said, I'm really interested in criminal justice reform, so I think that kind of helps me there.
0: Well, let's kind of dive right into that subject because you're you're kind of going to be going into a legislature where quote-unquote, criminal justice reform, or as I like to call it, maybe the post-Ferguson, post-Michael Brown policy agenda, hasn't really gotten a lot of traction. You've had things like Senate Bill 5 pass, which didn't really affect the city of St. Louis that much because the percentage of revenue is not that high. Um, but that has been castigated by some as, as not being ver- a very effective response to Ferguson. What would you want to do in the legislature to deal with that issue more specifically?
1: One thing I'd like to focus on more specifically is uh, a path to expungement, especially for low-level drug offenses. I mean, I can't tell you how many defendants I interviewed who, as I'm sure you both are well aware, once you're a convicted felon, you know, you can be legally discriminated against in your housing, um, your employment, sometimes losing the right to vote, at least until you're off papers. And a lot of these guys I spoke with just kind of felt like, I mean, it's universal that young people do stupid things, but it's really kind of unique to our culture where that can really follow them for the rest of their lives.
2: Do you think that criminal justice reform can achieve bipartisan support?
0: I do just well, ex- explain why. yeah
1: Well I think that in the, the benefit it works I mean, because I think um, we've tried this kind of mass incarceration model and that doesn't work. you know it's you know the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again expecting different results. So I think that when you can show um, data and to people that you know the real way to fix this is we need a different path.
2: Do you think that there are areas of reform that are more palatable to conservatives or are there um, specific things that you want to
1: focus on in that reform? Certain low-level drug offenses like marijuana possession, things like that would be more palatable.
0: What, what, do you, what do you think of the idea of bringing in an outside prosecutor, an outside investigator whenever there's a police-involved killing? Because that was a big issue during the circuit attorney's race. It's an issue that actually has gotten some bipartisan support in the legislature. But frankly, some prosecutors like Jennifer Joyce and Bob McCullough and even some former prosecutors like Claire McCaskill don't really particularly care for that idea. What would be your mindset if that comes down the pike?
1: I definitely recognize, and I think that, I mean, having worked closely with police officers, you know, when you're in the warrant office, we, you know, we see them every day. And I, I think at the very least, there's uh, a view in the, the public, you know, justifiably can say that, look, we see a conflict here. So I think that um, it makes sense that um, we consider, you know, having a, an outside prosecutor, or maybe it, be um, handled by like the attorney general's office.
0: The One thing that, that that opponents of that have said, that if you have an attorney general who campaigned for office and was really, really, quote unquote, po- pro-police, like let's say Bob McCullough became attorney general mm-hmm. or Josh Hawley became attorney general, uh, that's not going to be as effective uh, as of a outside or independent situation. How would you respond to that type of argumentation?
1: Well- I think it is because you're, you're ha- having a set of attorneys who don't necessarily. I mean, another example or something I could do would you have a um, a different county prosecuting come in. So you know, wherever you have lawyers who aren't the same ones interacting with the key uh, with the police that they're going to be calling as witnesses within the city.
2: So you received endorsements from the AFL-CIO and some. Uh, you've received other labor support and was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your stance on right to
1: work. Sure. I mean, I'm very. Uh, pro-union. I mean, I think, you know, right to work right to work less. So i um, definitely opposing it.
0: Tell me why you think that's not a good
1: idea. Well, I think that it's, it's an opportunity for, I mean, cutting off their funding in such a way. I mean, you're in a sense, you know, cutting them off at the knees so they won't be able to, you know, press for the things that are important to us.
0: Yeah, because for our listeners, right to work is kind of shorthand for a policy that would bar unionized companies or entities from forcing workers to To pay dues if the majority has voted organized. So, you know, you can actually decide not to be in a union, but in that situation in Missouri, you would still have to pay dues. So this is really about a union's ability to still be financially viable in that situation. I mean, I think the reason Liz asked that question is, depending on who's governor, that could become the top issue once you enter the legislature. What's kind of your expectations about how you know, all-consuming. That's going to become in 2017.
1: You know, I'm not sure. It it really depends on uh, the objectives that are and what's before us.
0: Yeah, and I guess it also depends on who the governor is. So if Eric Greitens becomes governor, they may just try to push it really quickly, and it might be passed regardless of whether you're opposed to it or not. Right. And if Chris Coster is governor, there's a mighty high veto override hill to to climb over.
2: Well, and also going into a legislature, as a Democrat where you'll be in the super minority, we're also wondering, you know, how are you going to make some of these arguments to Republicans, especially with right to work to Republicans who would say that it's boosted economies in other states that have adopted similar laws?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think what, what we need to do when we're, I mean, I think it's important to be able, always be willing to reach across the aisle. I mean, for example, I was recently selected to participate in the, uh, Missouri Chamber of Commerce's uh, Leadership Missouri Class of 2016. And, you know, that's a group that typically at least fiscally is on the conservative bend. So I think that being able to just try to find common ground and meet with people and focus on the issues that, you know, we agree on.
0: I mean, that's going to be a question we ask to any freshman state Democratic rep. We had Peter Meredith on the show. Mm-hmm. And he his his campaign situation was, that he was pretty liberal to progressive on a lot of issues, as I'm sure you are as well. But he was also talking extensively about how he was going to work with Republicans on issues that they can find common ground on. I've noticed there's a lot of people that are kind of coming in to the St. Louis city delegation that may be taking that similar mindset. Would that be kind of your your mindset going into, or are you playing to be like a rabble rouser who fights, 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 so to speak?
1: You know, it's, it'll be my first time serving in the legislature. I, I just, I, I don't really, haven't really thought about that.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, it sounds like a, it sounds like a question that I guess you got to answer once you get there before yeah. you decide.
2: On your website, you talked about education policy in terms of access to college. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. And then also um, talk a little bit more about K through 12 policy.
1: I think that that's a great question I mean we've got a big problem in the city of not being able to pay our teachers competitive salaries. so a lot of times they will move out to the county where they can make more money so I think different paths to secure funding to them and as far as like to college um importance of that I mean a big push for uh the stem education fields I think um for example programs like uh, uh cortex which is in part of it's in my district and um, securing funding for organizations like uh, the Missouri Economic Development Programs would be a, a big step in that direction.
0: Now, the St. Louis Public Schools, I mean, have become partially accredited in the last couple of years. There, there's still a lot of issues that come with the public schools here in St. Louis City, but there is some glimmers of hope, either with, with you know, rising test scores, with the emergence of charter schools or gifted program, what other things would you want to do as a legislature to kind of keep that momentum going and make sure that it doesn't backslide back into unaccredited status?
1: Well, for me, a big thing, as I was saying earlier, is just to focus on um, the STEM education fields and making sure we get funding for that those programs.
2: Can you tell us a little bit more about your plans for um, expanding access to college?
1: Um, yeah, I think we need more um, uh, pre-K, pro- just more of a... To, to get more funding for um, students to help cover their tuitions, things like that.
0: How would you do that in a, in a limited resource environment that is Jefferson City of Missouri?
1: Um, just through different, try to get through different policy measures that will allocate more funding to our students and in, uh, public institutions.
2: Talk a little bit more about Medicaid expansion. I think that was something else that you've noted is access to health care being um, an important thing that you want more citizens to have.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Missourians are taxed uh, approximately $2 billion every year by the federal government, and that's money sent back to our general assembly. Um, but because we haven't expanded Medicaid, I mean, that check's pretty much left uncashed in the mailbox year after year. I, mean, I think it's, it's over like a $4 billion spread that's estimated to produce over 40,000 jobs in the state of Missouri alone. So I think that um, Medicaid expansion is very important.
2: Do you think that that's something that will be on the table and, you know, do you think that has the potential for um, having enough bipartisan support to go through this next session?
1: I do. I think that because it's, at the very least, it's in everyone's self-interest.
0: It seems like this is an ideological issue because we've had situations and we've had Democrats who who make the same arguments as you, but the Republican legislature doesn't seem to listen very much. Is this a situation that you're going to need closer numbers in the House and the Senate in order to get momentum? Or do you think you can actually get momentum if, if the Democrats are still in a super minority?
1: I think we could still get uh, momentum with the Democrats still in the super minority. How? I think we just, like we're saying, um, we keep making those arguments, showing the research, the data, and just you know, commonly try to persuade, look, you know, we've tried this, here's the problems, here's the pitfalls from not incorporating these changes. Here's why it's in your benefit. It doesn't just benefit St. Louis and Kansas City, but rural Missouri as well.
2: You know, in addition to those issues, are, do you have any goals or very specific things that you would like to be able to work on while in Jeff City?
1: Uh, criminal justice reform.
0: I'm not sure how many of the new people besides Peter Meredith are going to be attorneys. How do you think that expertise is going to help you overall in the legislature of, of being an attorney?
1: Well, I think it definitely helps as far as, you know, uh, you know, drafting laws and certain ones, is, especially, you know, how I think as a lawyer, we're able to look at how poorly written laws can be interpreted in a negative way, like the recent, like constitutional carry and these, um, this movement for the new stand your ground laws where pretty much it's changes it from an objective to a subjective viewpoint of as far as fear and using lethal force. So I think that, um, you know, the, the lawyers, uh, especially the ones from the St. Louis are going to say, look, I, n- I know what you're trying to do here, but here's why this is a terrible idea. And, you know, try to find a a more appropriate solution.
0: So I imagine that that bill that you mentioned, which is going to be up for a uh, veto override, that's right? not something you're terribly supportive of. Is that a fair <laughs> that's assessment? Fair. Yeah. Can you explain why?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that gets so much proof because you're trying to to create something that, you know, might work in uh, a rural Missouri, but, you know, in cities like Kansas City and St. Louis, where you've got, you know, a, a real problem of gun violence, that it, um, it's, it's very
0: dangerous. Yeah. It doesn't seem, though, that uh, Attorney General Koster, who's your Democratic gubernatorial nominee, is, is very receptive to these types of arguments. He's often touted the fact that he's um, been endorsed by the NRA in the past and has often talked up his pro-gun stances. Is that going to be a pretty big obstacle to overcome um, when you're in the legislature if either he or Greitens are are governor and they aren't very receptive to restricting firearms?
1: I mean, I I can't speak for what what they're going to do. um, So I I don't know.
0: You're not going to have, as I mentioned on the outset, you don't have a Republican opponent. Um, You're kind of going to be in a situation where you're going to be elected almost by default. So what are you going to be doing over the next few months as far as any election-related things or any getting up to speed on legislative things?
1: Yeah, I mean, a, a big thing I want to you know is help um, my friends who do have uh, opponents in the general. And, like um, who? Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd like to help on Coster's campaign. Uh, Cora Walker's a friend of mine. She's um, got an opponent in the general as well, and uh, Bill Otto. With his uh, campaign, Jason Cander.
0: Yeah, Bill Otto, who's running for Congress, Jason Cander, who's running for for the U.S. Senate. Are there other
2: questions that you wish that we would ask you, or that you you know had been considering before walking into the studio today?
1: Uh, no. <laughs>
0: you're not <laughs> that, that inquisitive. I guess up. I guess we're you're not as inquisitive as we thought. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm joking on that. So we talked a little bit about this when we interviewed Peter Meredith, like there are kind of archetypes of people who go into the legislature there's there's young guys or young long women like yourself there's kind of older more established professionals there's people who are retired um have you talked with some of the newer people that have been kind of elected in a similar way that you have and what are their expectations going in are they similar based off their life experience basically uh wow um not really,
1: I mean, I, and i I don't know. I can't say I, I, the the few legislatures i I do know. I mean, we we all come from different backgrounds, um at least for me getting involved. I mean, I had certain advantages that uh, uh, a lot of people don't. I mean, I'm single. You know, my parents have their health. I don't have any kids. So I know that for for some legislatures that um it, uh, that,
0: that's a big barrier. yeah, we were that's talking what I'm with yeah, yeah when we were right. talking with Peter Meredith, who happened to have his daughter with her, him at the time. He mentioned the fact that there aren't many people who are say in their mid-30s who have kids who have established professions who can really give all that up to go to the legislature right and i you know i i think that there's a debate over whether that's a good thing or a bad thing about in this term limited environment you have a lot of younger legislators kind of coming in with a burst of energy and enthusiasm what do you kind of think about that as a reality for the legislature? you think that's a good thing that a younger person like you is going to be going into the legislature?
1: Yeah, I, I think it, we, we definitely need more young people um, involved in the legislature. You know, I guess young, ambitious, and maybe a little naive.
0: A little naive? Yeah. So are you ready to have your na- naivete destroyed when you go to Jefferson <laughs> City?
1: I, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I try to be a pretty optimistic person, so... Yeah.
0: Well, we'll have to have you back on when uh, you're actually legislating and not just talking about goals. So we appreciate your time this afternoon. For all of us, our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Liz on Twitter at...
2: At Liz underscore Schlemmer.
0: How do you spell your last name oh. for S- uh, for our listeners?
2: S C H L E M M E R.
0: How would they follow you on Twitter?
1: Sure. Well, first, thanks again for having me, and you can follow me at uh, robertsforstl.com
0: Follow him and or his... excuse me,
1: roberts4stl is my handle. I'm not very good at Twitter. Oh, that's
0: okay. <laughs> I, I'm sure you'll get better at Twitter as, as time goes on. Follow him on Twitter, and we'll be back next time. Until then, so
1: long. <laughs>
2: Spin it.